Welcome to Lit with Charles, a podcast on all things literary where I interview people who've either written books or have interesting things to say about them. If you're like me, then you love reading, but maybe you're not sure what you should be reading or maybe you feel intimidated by conversations around books. The main aim of this podcast is to make literature exciting and accessible and hopefully make you discover new books and authors that are off the beaten track. In this podcast, I try to cover all genres and types of books, from serious historical nonfiction to trashy novels, and I talk to all sorts of authors so that it never feels like the same episode twice. I wanted to make some sort of work where I felt like I could just be very direct with people and have like very immediate exchanges, and then also to make something that could exist outside of the art world. The graphic novelist Chris Ware once said, cartoons are not real drawings because there are drawings intended to be read. Those are wise words that make a lot of sense to me. I've long admired the art of cartoons from sources like The New Yorker, for example. Some of my favorite artists like Sol Steinberg or Christoph Niemann are able to communicate in universes in a single picture, much like the greatest writers are able to do the same in a few hundred words. For me, it's a great form of storytelling. This is why I was so excited when I received a book from this week's guest, the London-based American artist Orfeo Tajuri. His new book is called Little Passing Thoughts, and it's published by a French publisher called Chose Commune. It reminded me of that fine tradition of cartoons mixed with a dose of surreal humor and a dash of poetic perspective, and above all, a very profound, touching sincerity. Anybody who's met Orfeo will tell you that he's quite possibly the nicest man alive, and in past conversations with him, I've always been struck by how deep his literary knowledge is and how thoughtfully it informs his brilliant work. In today's episode, Orfeo and I talk about what it takes to come up with great ideas, where they come from, and about the fact that he dislikes the term artist and might prefer visual poet, which seems apt after giving one glance at his work. Also in this episode, we hear about Orfeo's literary tastes and his recommendations on some great reads, including books you may never have heard of. If you're interested in following his work, then I really recommend his book, Little Passing Thoughts, or following him on Instagram at OrfeoT, O-R-F-E-O-T. What do you call your art? Is it cartoons or illustrations or passing thoughts? How do you define it? That's a great question because it's definitely a book that sits somewhere in between a bunch of spaces. In the past, you and I have spoken about literature mostly from a kind of classical literature standpoint, American authors we both enjoy. And I think for me, when I'm describing this book to people, I think of the New Yorker cartoons, Mm -hmm. which obviously have this illustration with caption format, which Mm -hmm. is what a lot of the book is. But I suppose it's kind of the same joy you would get when you look at a really great painting and then you see the caption is something like, Mm -hmm. I was at the photographer's gallery recently and there's this photo of a little boy going out on a boat to sea. And it's a really beautiful photo. I was very taken by it. So I went up close and the title of the photograph was little David going out to sea for the first time after his father passed away. Oh, wow. And it was just this combination of image and text that just like explodes everything. 
But I wonder, yeah, like when is the birth of this kind of image with text as completed work as opposed to a work that happens to also have a title? So the text is definitely an integral part of the art. Yeah, definitely with these, I would say. And so to come back to the question, when somebody asks you at a party, oh, yeah. what, what is your book about? What word do you use to... It's a bit like when someone says, like, what kind of art do you make? Or similarly, if someone said, like, what kind of books do you like? Or what is your mm. podcast about? Or what do you make work about? There's this thing where you have a moment of interaction and judgment with what I project onto the person, mm -hmm. what sort of depth or nuance level of answer they're expecting from me. Uh -huh. So I might just say, oh, it's a book of cartoons. Mm -hmm. Or I might, depending on where we've come from at the start of the conversation, I might say, you know, oh, this is me taking snapshots of thoughts throughout my day and trying to be in a meditative state where I can absorb these moments of presence that I mm -hmm. feel are worth capturing. How did you start this art? What was the, your path towards building this book? What are some of the milestones of your career mm. where you thought to yourself, oh, you know, maybe I should be a, a video artist. I uh -huh. actually know, but I prefer the, this idea of capturing thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the path? So the first thing that comes to mind is that when I was very young, we used to have this computer at home. I would just sit there during the day and I would type stream of consciousness and what seems so absurd to me now, given like what my natural headspace is and like my low hum of stress or whatever that I experience throughout the day, and also my headspace when I'm making, is that I would be writing and I would just be laughing out loud to myself. Like I would write something that I thought was funny and I would just crack up and be laughing. <laughs> Which even now reading books, I very rarely do. Have laugh out loud moments. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't, I don't know if you do. I'm actually I do with very specific authors. Yeah. Uh, for example, George Saunders uh -huh. is an author who really brings out a lot of laugh out loud moments. But it is quite rare. It's yeah. true. And it's such a joy, like when you're on the tube or something, and you catch someone who's reading and they're like laughing. Yeah. yeah. It's actually yeah. amazing. Yeah. That, that yeah. can still trigger that in someone. So stream of conscious writing as a child, laughing out loud. And then move on a long ways. I studied writing at university, mm -hmm. moved to New York, which was like a super visual culture for mm -hmm. me. And I'd really wanted to work as a writer, but I immediately came up against this wall of like, if you want to write something you're very interested in, you're definitely going to have to do some other sort of work from the outset. Mm -hmm. Like when I graduated college, my advisor said, oh, so do you really want to become a writer? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And he was like, well, then you should be a butcher for a bit. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being like so knocked off my wow. seat by that comment. And I, the philosophy behind that is that you'd get some life experience to inform the writing. Yeah. So he was actually a really great author. Uh, I want to say his name's Adam Johnson. Oh, wow. The novelist Adam Johnson? Pulitzer Prize winner. Who wrote The Orphan Master's Son. Yeah. Oh, wow. Which, by the way, is an excellent book. I don't know if you've read it. <laughs> <laughs> I read it at the time. And an article he wrote, I think for like GQ, about the chef of the Kim Jong-un. Oh, right. Okay. But so he told me that he used to do this thing where when he was planning on writing a book or an article about a place, he would go to that town or that city and he would stop a postman or a police officer and he would say, would it be possible for me one day to just do a ride along with you? And I'll just get in the car and you can show me around the town and talk about which spots or certain spots or which characters. Wow. 
And he, that was like a, a part of his research for him. I've heard that Werner Herzog, the filmmaker, mm-hmm. for a long time drove a taxi in Germany oh, yeah. and credits a lot of his art philosophy around the things he saw. Oh, just, I mean, that's amazing. It yeah. feels like relevant to this book, which is just kind of picking up small moments and details throughout the day. And so I'm curious about the process of putting together the cartoons in this book. Do you sit at your desk and think, okay, I'm going to churn out 10 cartoons now, or, or is it more a case of you're sitting on the subway, you see somebody reading something and they laugh out loud, and that gives you an idea for a cartoon? Or uh-huh. How does it work? Oddly, it's more the former, which even as I say, it sounds kind of strange. But mm-hmm. to answer kind of your previous question and this question a bit more, I've worked a bit in the fine art realm trying to do like more like serious exhibitions. Mm-hmm. I've shown a bit in Paris and a bit in London doing wood carvings and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's an amazing space, but there's a a subtlety and a level of a sense of there being veils between the sort of conversations that you really want to have with people. And I wanted to make some sort of work where I felt like I could just be very direct with people and have like very immediate exchanges. And then also to make something that could exist outside of the art world. Because mm-hmm. whilst there's so much inspiration there, I feel like there's also... Occasionally, a sense of it being quite a small community and mm-hmm. the, the exchanges. The yeah. So I was looking for these different spaces where I felt that people are receiving art or people are open to art and people who aren't necessarily museum goers or gallery goers. Mm-hmm. And it popped into my head that the New Yorker would be one of the most iconic spots to get an artwork that mm-hmm. wasn't a gallery. Like mm-hmm. if you could place one somewhere. Uh, yeah. I was like, this is so prestigious in this amazing way that I think captures so many different people a new wall of art yeah uh, that's such an interesting perspective and and so i actually started i would take a page in my notebook and divide it into nine squares by mm-hmm. drawing lines and then before bed every evening i said i've got to fill this with nine potentially funny cartoons <laughs> wow which would just be probably 99% awful, maybe 1% a little bit funny. But for me, but I was with like, that volume of productivity, that's yeah. a great hit rate because yeah. you'd still generate a lot of laugh out loud uh, cartoons. Yeah, at least for myself. And I started submitting them to The New Yorker with no success, but I'll, I'll continue submitting them. Mm-hmm. But I realized quite quickly that there was a difference between the tone of things that I was trying to deliver and the tone of the general New Yorker cartoon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Which, huge respect for the New Yorker. I still feel like there's a kind of format, joke, language, mm-hmm. visual a style. A vernacular of sorts that's very, yeah. That's sort of, uh, I feel like they've been trapped in that space for a little a- bit. A- again, we, I think we come back to the word microcosm. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit that it, yeah. it, it is its own bubble, and it's interesting that you're looking for a way to... Yeah, that's true. So maybe there's this impulse to disrupt the microcosm every Mm -hmm. time. And I think it's very true what you say that your language, the language you use in this book, has a difference from that sort of New Yorker humor. There's actually a lot of very touching, Mm. very optimistic Mm -hmm. points of view in your cartoons, Mm -hmm. uh, very sincere. Mm -hmm. You said earlier, I'm going sometimes for laugh out loud, but... Actually, not all of this is at laugh out loud. Some yeah. of it is actually touching yeah. out loud. Uh-huh. You know? So how do you 
do you sit down and think to yourself, okay, now I'm going to be more sincere and touching? Mm. Or do you think to yourself, no, I'm going to be more funny now? I think it's probably quite an accurate reflection on the fact that it is that process of being like, okay, now I'm going to sit down and do my nine drawings, mm. which by the way has shifted now. Sometimes it'll be two drawings in the day. Sometimes mm. it'll be like 30 in the day. Oh, wow. But I think it's this moment of being like, okay, I should sit down and do it now. And then what happens is it's just whatever headspace I was in in that moment when I chose to mm. sit down. So that's why if I'm sitting down in the evening, quite often there'll be these kind of meditative, reflective, maybe a little bit melancholy, a bit somber, a bit potentially excessively sincere or like excessively sweet. Mm -hmm. And then in the morning post-coffee, I'm like buzzing. I'm like, <laughs> that's hilarious. It's sunny out. I'm so happy. Like, look at that dog. And just like this like whole range of things. But it just ends up being this like mini reflection on whatever my headspace is. Was the intention originally to put together a book like this or did you think to yourself after a while, wow, I've put together a lot of great cartoons. I have a lot of material. I can put together a book. Actually, I started this Instagram page that was separate to my personal page mm -hmm. that was only showing these cartoons. Mm -hmm. And I think because of New Yorker cartoons mm -hmm. with the image and caption, mm -hmm. I think are sort of a strange and early precursor for memes because mm -hmm. memes now it's photo and caption mm -hmm. there's this lineage that seems like quite mm -hmm. clear there to me at least i'm not sure what's coming before new yorker cartoons that's mm -hmm. such a good question but i do see the step into memes so all to say that i started putting these cartoons on instagram as a single page mm -hmm. and i think they're so legible in that kind of meme quick share format mm -hmm. but with hopefully a voice that feels at least in a few of the cartoons, unique to my own thing. Mm -hmm. I'm aware that some of them probably cross over with different people and different artists. Mm -hmm. But it meant that it was this page where people could rapidly share different ideas and certain ones caught on and things like that. So that page grew way faster than my personal mm -hmm. Instagram. And this woman called Cecile, her last name is Pombuf Komizumi. Mm -hmm. I probably completely butchered that. Mm -hmm. But she's an amazing publisher and designer who has this project in Marseille called Shows Commune, which I suppose is like common thing. Common thing, yeah, that's right. Which is also so wonderful given that I was trying to make these drawings that could be like widely mm -hmm. viewed accessible and accessible. And understandable, yeah, yeah. And she's made tons of beautiful photo books actually. Mm -hmm. um, and she reached out to me and said, do you want to make a book of these cartoons? And I... I had considered making a book, but in my mind, I'd thought it should, I had to have a narrative in mind. There should be a specific topic I want to deliver. It should be functional in a kind of linear sense. Mm -hmm. And she said, do you want to just put together a bunch of these cartoons in kind of any format and, mm -hmm. and make a book together, which I was so excited about. She'd actually seen little individual drawings in the Yvonne Lambert bookstore in Paris. Mm -hmm where I used to work and where we did a launch for this book. And that's it's a very prestigious gallery in Paris. So a, a great starting point to launch your book. Yeah, such a great place. In terms of the storytelling, is there a, a meta story in terms of the order? Was there a certain curation? Mm. Or was the idea, let's just put it in whatever order we fancy and, uh -huh. and see what comes out? I mean, how how is this 
curated? How much did you leave to the side or edit out? Now there's more than double the amount of cartoons. Mm -hmm. I have about a thousand cartoons. Mm -hmm. So we cut out a huge portion of them. And I had an exchange with Cecile from Shows Commune about trying to figure out an order for things. Mm -hmm. And initially she sent me over a first look which had paired, you know, things that were about being tired with a cartoon that was about sleeping or mm -hmm. something about the moon with something about the sun or something about a dog with something about a cat. And actually, I found that it really killed both cartoons that were presented side by side to put ones that dealt with the same subject side by side somehow robbed each one of its energy mm -hmm. because it felt like I was trying to make a more grand double statement on something I rather see. than the kind of pinpointed focused Specific thought. little passing thought. Yeah. And you'd get the sense of... It was almost as if I'd spoken for 20 minutes and said something very minimal. Mm -hmm. Then that I just like said one sentence and, mm -hmm. and left it with that. And you're kind of like, why is he spent all this time saying nothing? Mm -hmm. Kind of It's sort of what it felt like to me. Mm -hmm. So we ended up almost completely randomizing the drawings in the book. Okay. I think the first one is a thing that just says the pen stains the page. Mm -hmm. The pen stains the page. And then dive into a book. Yeah. So there's this kind of... There's definitely some sort of opener there, but I felt a little bit wary once I received the book of having this kind of sentence opener that says the pen stains the page because mm -hmm. it feels like quite a strong like mission mm -hmm. statement or something mm -hmm. like that. But really it was just one of a thousand random drawings that could have been in but the book. Perfect, perfect selection there. Yeah. You had done a project also, uh, which isn't in this book, maybe a side project, which I loved. You, you were selecting certain aspects of life, but aspects of life that lacked a word, a specific word. And so you were finding definitions mm. that lacked a word. Mm -hmm. How does that connect to that? Is there a book coming out of that? Or what do you think of, of that element? Because it's such a brilliant play on language and writing mm. that, that you're filling a gap for a word that doesn't exist. Uh -huh. I hope there's a book that could emerge from that. I've got a long list of yeah, what I call wordless definitions. Wordless definitions, exactly. Yeah. yeah, Which are just definitions for words that I would like to exist. So, for instance, there's the definition for something that's so awful, it makes everything around it appear better. <laughs> which reminds me of a, a separate definition, which would be someone who's so hunched over that it reminds you to stand upright, to like pull your shoulders back. Or the relief of waking to realize it was only a dream. Mm -hmm. Inversely, the disappointment of waking to realize it was only a dream. Or the taste of stamps. There's mm -hmm. this whole spectrum of the how serious those definitions might be. But I think it's a similar overall theme or attempt in, mm -hmm. the, in the creative process, which is just to find different strategies that allow me to be a bit more present. So those... Like the definitions will normally come, I think, when I'm just sitting there quite present and there'll be this flash of like, oh, like this is something I've experienced all the time, mm -hmm. but only in this moment where I feel present and aware, am I capable of observing it as a unique thing? Mm -hmm. You know, like we've probably all had that thing where you lick an envelope or you lick a stamp and you put it on. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, that's kind of sweet. But only if I'm lucid to the fact of that as like mm -hmm. a, a moment, do I then think to record it in some mm -hmm. sort of way. 
It's interesting. You just used the word lucid, and I think yeah. that's a very good word mm. to interpret what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, you have to be ultra aware in a way. Mm. You know, there's a lot of discussion or a lot of awareness right now around things like meditation, mm. clearing your mind, or for example, in, in sports, you know, athletes have to clear their minds and mm. like chase out ideas and mm -hmm. thoughts. And, and, and yet this seems to be a sort of thought catcher uh -huh. or how, where, where does this stand? That's really interesting. The, the flip of it. Yeah. It's really funny. I wonder how that correlates to the, yeah, the kind of flow state of athletes that mm -hmm. you're talking about or the flow state of, an artist who's really painting something mm. and in the zone. I don't know a huge amount about meditation, but I think there's the idea you're never fully going to stop thinking. Mm -hmm. And there's constantly going to be thoughts passing through, but mm -hmm. the idea is not to be too attached to them. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe this process of being lucid enough to identify the thought as it's passing through is itself kind of an attempt at that kind of flow state and mm -hmm. awareness. Because if I... I'm able to be far enough from the thought that I can observe it as something that's uniquely arriving in that moment, then I'm not specifically attached to that thought. Mm -hmm. I went and saw Laurie Anderson yesterday mm -hmm. perform at the Barbican. Just for our listeners, she is the, the widow of Lou Reed and a great performance artist. And, and so she was at the Barbican yesterday. Yeah. That she must have been quite a show. It was, it was really amazing. Musically, I wasn't super into it, mm -hmm. but she lyrically amazing. And her audience banter slash conversation was so inspiring and wise. Mm -hmm. And she spoke briefly about her Tai Chi teacher who said to her, practice feeling sad and feeling sadness without being sad, which I thought was such an interesting distinction. This allowing yourself to feel the sort of the weight of whatever your own difficulties are or any one of the vast number of tragedies in the world going on mm -hmm. without becoming that thing, mm -hmm. just allowing it to kind of pass through. And maybe there's, that's a sort of lucidity. That's a similar effort in terms of feeling that thought, observing that thought and simultaneously drawing it as a way of maybe kind of re-releasing it. I actually had a moment earlier last year where I was feeling really down mm -hmm. and on one evening I did loads of these drawings and there's probably a few of them in the book where it's kind of like I'm so lost right now how did I end up here mm -hmm. you know I'm exhausted and just this there's a slightly heavier tone to a few of them mm -hmm. and the following day I spoke to a friend on the phone who I know has kind of consistently throughout his life had serious ups and downs and before I even mentioned that I'd done any drawings, I don't think I would have mentioned it to him. He said, it's great that you have this practice and this process that allows you to kind of regularly digest snippets of your life. Mm -hmm. But maybe sometimes you should just sit and feel it. I became wary and aware of these drawings as being this wonderful thing that allows me to say, oh, I'm feeling pretty down right now. Like I should do a little sketch and mm -hmm. allow it to move on but also potentially inversely this kind of barrier that is a way of not quite having to feel the thing mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I'm making it somehow productive or mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's continuing yeah. my working day. So it gives me this little boost of yeah. I've done something positive. You're sending it into this artistic outlet rather than through your own mm. mind and emotions. Yeah. 
I've never really been a photographer, but I wonder if it's the same for most artistic practices. I was about to ask you that question. (laughs) I wonder if it is a, because you hear so often artists, writers have to experience the pain, the suffering in order to have the raw material to, you know, you have, you can't be an artist without suffering. Yeah. Uh, And I've always wondered exactly what that relationship in the process was. Mm. Uh, But uh, I guess (laughs) neither of us has the answer. And we, yeah, I assume it varies for everyone. I just think about, you know, sort of maybe an archetype of a kind of fictional documentary character or Bill Cunningham, is he that really famous fashion photographer yeah. from New York? Is yeah. that the right person? Is he still alive? I believe he I passed think he away. passed away. Yeah, yeah. But they made they made a little documentary about him. Mm-hmm. And you really got a sense of this very shy character mm. and someone who really lived behind his camera, but was everybody knew him. He was photographing mm. everyone in the street. And I think I mean, I, again, I didn't watch the Warhol Netflix documentary, mm. but maybe there's also this sense of this person whose art you know, kind of shields them mm. from the world and also opens them up hugely to the world. Mm. I feel like there's always this kind of wall. When I think of Warhol, I think of someone who's somehow a bit behind, but also so loud, but mm. this kind of... The loudness shields him, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Just a side question, but you mentioned earlier the, the word memes, and there is something in here that definitely correlates to that. Mm. And recently in this podcast, I interviewed the director of the Warburg Institute in London, and he was mentioning to me, oh, well, you know, A.B. Warburg, founder of uh, the Institute, is essentially one of the earliest people to think about memes, quote unquote memes, because in those days it wasn't called that, but the the transmission of information visually and, and so on, the connection between different points of reference and so on. Are you, I don't know, aware of the Institute, of its work? Are you, did, did you ever connect to it or not? Or uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, so I was actually at, I went to the Slade uh, mm-hmm. at UCL to do my master's mm-hmm. in fine art. And I think they're right next to the Warburg Institute. Right. I had I had a pass to go in mm-hmm. and it was organized in this way where it was kind of, it's not alphabetical. Exactly. It's it, not even that clearly thematic, but it's yeah. kind of like where his personal interest took him next. That's exactly like right. That. Yeah. The, the, the path of his interest. Yeah. Divided into broad sections, I think of like action, object, theory. I mean, it's, it's yeah. very vague, but... What I remember from the interview with Bill Sherman was that he was, you know, trying to connect the art of indigenous tribes in North America to ancient Greek frescoes and, yeah. you know, how you could build a path and, and how that path could then be community. I mean, uh, which I think you fit into somehow. Uh-huh. You're the culmination <laughs> of that, maybe. Uh, the culmination. Yeah. I feel like I'm the branch that took like a strange step ah, maybe, that tree. maybe, yeah. <laughs> but no, that's such a wonderful compliment, actually, mm-hmm. to hear that I you might think I'm vaguely associated with that lineage, which I think of as such a wonderful combination of a poetic approach to life with a kind of scientific research heavy. Mm. I remember reading a, a snippet of Emerson where he's saying we all should be studying nature mm-hmm. and we all should be studying trees and plants and the way various interactions happen in nature. 
because the, those interactions are so applicable to our own lives and how we interact with one another. So if you think about the way certain trees and forests will grow but leave space mm -hmm. so that the smaller ones can begin to grow or so that the crowns of each tree doesn't quite touch. Mm -hmm. And there's these insane photographs where you can see the perfect outline of sky through the leaves of each mm. tree. But again, it, you might look at something like that and compare it or find a parallel in terms of, you know, the people who have become masters in their fields need to leave room for, you know, novices or amateurs mm -hmm. to begin to rise up. And mm -hmm. the fact of leaving that space or the unanswered questions are what allow the new scientist to, you know, whatever comparison you wish to make. Mm -hmm. But I think it's this great blend of kind of scientific observation with the freedom of thought and the kind of poetic movement of thought that allows one to make a non-linear leap into something that'll potentially cause a new scientific revelation somewhere else. And I think that, that the Warburg Institute really invites that in terms of being like, like you said, very fertile soil. Or, yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about literature about mm -hmm. your literary taste we had conversation i think last year mm -hmm. but i'll start with the question that i always ask which is what's your favorite book that i've never heard of joseph and his brothers by thomas mann so i know thomas mann but i don't know that particular book so tell us about it and, and why do you enjoy it so much the book joseph and his brothers is just an enormous chunky book and it really that seems, took that me. seems par for the course for Thomas Mann. Uh -huh. uh, he likes his chunky books. Or, true. Actually, you know, Death in Venice is, is pretty slim, but Magic Mountain and Budden Brooks are both. Put both of those together. No, really. It's, it's really like a, a beast of a book. Oh, wow. But it's the story of Joseph from the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, Not Joseph, Jesus' dad, but no, Joseph, Joseph the Egyptian. And the Technicolor uh, Dreamcoat yeah, or whatever right, the, yeah. the musical has been. And. I think in the actual Bible, that's a very small section where he's just like, there's this guy, Joseph, he had his brothers, they got jealous of him, they mm -hmm. threw him in a well, and then he like rose up and become Pharaoh's right-hand man. Mm -hmm. And I think Thomas Mann must have been like very taken by this segment. And he does this incredible like superhuman effort, I find, of just saying like, how could his brothers have arrived at this point that they were willing to push him and beat him into mm -hmm. a well? How did this person rise out of this well into this amazing space? Mm -hmm. It's that entire narrative unfolding with also the story of his father, Jacob, meeting his first wife and giving birth. And you get this incredible layering of time. Thomas Mann makes a really concerted effort to occupy the perspective, perhaps, of someone in that time. Mm -hmm. For instance, he says, you know, there wouldn't have been wonderfully recorded history, like written history. There wouldn't have been birth certificates and things like this at that time. So someone who had the name Jacob might associate themselves with the anecdotes of an ancestral Jacob or someone mm -hmm. before. So a character called Joseph is also holding this entire history of everyone who's been called Joseph. Wow. And it's like little details like that. <laughs> All the that. Josephs of history yeah. congregate into each other. That's yeah. crazy. And it's little details like that. Combined with Thomas Mann's just insane ability to understand the inner workings of humans. Mm -hmm. And you throw in all these different social dynamics that are happening. I think I got really just wrapped up in this story. It was the last book I've really wept in. 
It's really, really beautiful. What's a great book that you've read in the last 12 months that you would recommend to our listeners? I started reading recently Henry Miller, The Smile at the Foot of the Ladder. Uh-huh. Do you know this one? I don't. You know, I have to confess, I've never read Henry Miller. Kind of a great, probably very controversial character. Mm. I think now he would be canceled in a second. I think so. I drove to his library in Big Sur, California. It's a very unusual space. And what struck me actually was that there's a sign at the entrance that says, Henry Miller, when he was alive, always said he never wanted a memorial to him because he thought memorials were rubbish. And he never wanted a library because he thought collections of books were just stupid and so on. But as soon as he died, his best friend built his <laughs> library. <laughs> and I just thought that's a little disrespectful, but okay. But so... I weirdly never read Henry Miller's. So uh, tell us about this book. What, what's the, the title? The Smile at the Foot of the Ladder. It definitely has a more innocent uh, vibe to it. Vibe to it more than sexy, a lot of the like yeah. sexy stuff. The main character I think is called Maurice. And it describes this guy who is a clown in a circus. And one day, instead of performing his act, he's just like sort of melancholy and he completely zones out. And he's sitting at the foot of this ladder, this enormous ladder that's part of his piece. Mm -hmm. And he just zones out and falls into this like deeply meditative space. And when he comes to, everyone's like dying with laughter and clapping and applauding. And everyone's just like so struck by this like strange act of being in a perfectly zened out space. Wow. And that kind of becomes his thing. <laughs> and it's sort of about the the unfolding of someone who's made this act of pure presence there, what they're presenting to people. Well, that sounds like a fantastic book. Conversely, what's a book that you've read in the last 12 months that you were disappointed by? And we all have books that we didn't enjoy as much as we thought, or uh -huh. people are quite shy generally about answering this, but I, I think it's good to be open about mm -hmm. stuff we don't enjoy. Well, someone recently recommended to me Anais Nin's Anais Nin, yeah. her book, Little Birds. Okay. Do you know this book? I mean, I've heard of it. And, and that's funny because she's connected to Henry Miller. They were, I think, lovers in Paris in the 30s or so. The connection makes sense because someone who's actually quite, quite a tender, gentle character mm -hmm. recommended this book. And it's just like pure erotica. Pure erotica, right, yeah. And I was like, oh, this is not... They were just like, you should read Little Birds. It's the first one. <laughs> and I was kind of just like, like I'll, I'll try and get that dosage of erotica in, in my, my real life rather than in <laughs> my literary life. Fair enough. What is a book that you would take to a desert island? There's a musician and poet died relatively recently, whose name is David Berman. Okay. He has a had a band called the Silver Jews and then a band called Purple Mountains. And he wrote a book of poems called Actual Air. And I love that book of poems because he has perfectly captured this ability to be very present mm -hmm. and to enjoy his surroundings and to observe his surroundings in very nuanced ways. Mm -hmm. As, as I say it, the book probably wouldn't be long enough to last me for my desert island life. Mm -hmm. But what I would be trying to gain from it would be the perspective that he has. I, I think it's a perspective that would serve me well on the island because mm -hmm. I'd be able to find such beauty in such small things. 
But for instance, he has a lyric where he says, my ski vest has buttons like liquor store mirrors, and they help me to see that everything inside of this room is a part of me. Mm-hmm. And it's just this wonderful gesture of those those round buttons that mm-hmm. are so familiar mm-hmm. and taking something that's that simple and that familiar and finding a way to connect it so vastly to everything else. Mm-hmm. Or he says, every time I go downtown, I wear my corduroy suit because it's made of tiny gutters that the rain can run right through. <laughs> and you just get this movement of, a tiny symbol into mm. something so vast. Mm. And in my sort of trapped isolation on the island, maybe that would be a wonderful way of re- reconnecting to larger way, humanity. Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of connects to your work in a mm. small way. It's, it's a quite observational, mm. amplifying perspective mm. of looking at small things and capturing them. In a way, one could almost say that you're a visual poet. Mm. Is, is that something that you consider? I mean, is, is I take that. I'd prefer that to the term artist. Often if someone introduces themselves to me as an artist, I have the bias that probably, or at least the perspective that probably everyone else has, which is when you, when someone says artist to me, I picture whatever nine out of 10 gallery shows that I've been to mm-hmm. where I don't normally connect with what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. So if you just say artist to me, Unfortunately, I picture the nine out of 10 shows mm-hmm. where I'm not really connecting. Mm-hmm. I'd rather someone say visual poet. Mm-hmm. And then I think, oh, like, what do I find poetic in my life? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the word poet to me is maybe tainted with a kind of historic sort of over abstract, s- over abstract, over considered, overly mm-hmm. introspective. But I think it's slowly being liberated because people aren't claiming it that much now. Mm-hmm. So when I think of poet, I think of, oh, what do I find poetic? And that's, you know, why I place so much of my energy is in finding that kind of beauty. Mm-hmm. So I take visual poet. What book changed your mind? It's funny the picture I'm painting of myself based on these answers. Mm-hmm. It'll make me seem quite religious or biblical. But there is a book, or I suppose a gospel, Mm-hmm. that came out that's called The Gospel According to Judas. Okay. And it was one of those texts that was discovered in a cave somewhere in the desert that has been preserved for oh, wow. a huge amount a, of time. A legit scroll, a legit, carbon dated to... Yeah. Okay. Probably 200 AD or something. Okay. And it's prefaced by this comment that, you know, when the, when the Bible was being written... Mm-hmm. Presumably, like any kind of news source today, mm-hmm. there's this wrestling of political powers and For financial sure. powers mm-hmm. and, you know, what ends up actually becoming the primary content of that book is whoever had the, the most victorious. political sway that yeah. could, yeah. you know, so it's filled with content that must have suited whoever was, you know, whoever the publisher was. So there's this gospel according to Judas, which is kind of like his like defending himself narrative so it's an ap- apology well no defense, it's, or- it's not an apology it's kind of a repainting of the narrative mm-hmm. that serves as a, a defense for him mm-hmm. which is and i've i've always very much sympathized or felt for the character of judas mm-hmm. because i just feel like that was the way the myth or the story 
or the history had mm-hmm. to unfold. Mm-hmm. And in order for it to the final scene to occur properly, you needed someone who was going to be the villain in that mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. But in this gospel according to Judas, there's a scene which is also in the Bible where Jesus says, who of you recognizes me? Mm-hmm. And I think in the Bible version, all 12 apostles like refuse to look at him and they're like, we don't recognize you. Mm-hmm. In the gospel according to Judas, Judas puts his hand up and he's like, I know who you are. Which is sort of to say, I know you're this eternal character who's God, who's not bound to mm-hmm. a human body. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is, takes him aside and says, because you know who I am, you're going to have the hardest role that any of the apostles will yeah. have. And it's kind of paints this interesting picture where it's like, because Judas understood whatever the idea that Jesus was trying to pass on, that his life is an eternal life. Mm -hmm. He was the one person who could take it upon himself to kind of sacrifice Jesus. To play that role of the villain. I thought that was a really interesting inverse of the narrative. That definitely changed my mind. And a wonderful book called Chaos by James Gleick. Mm -hmm. Great book, yeah. About the mathematics of chaos theory. And that was pretty accessible for a non-math person. Yeah. Accessible, but only for the first 50% of the book. For me. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It was like, for me, it was really like uh, chopping through the Amazon with a machete. And then you mm-hmm. come upon a clearing and you're like, oh, I've made it. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the other side of the clearing and you have to start chopping again. Mm-hmm. There are these moments where I was just like forcing myself through it. And then just a really beautiful statement that clarified everything. Mm-hmm. And then I was back forcing myself through. But... That, I think, was really a perspective-shifting book in this amazing way that I think formed, like you described the Warburg Institute, it formed these connections between things that are seemingly separate. He, he kind of begins, I think, by talking about clouds and trying to predict the weather mm-hmm. and how after a couple of days, it becomes so difficult mm-hmm. to predict the weather because the tiniest yeah. thing will cause these enormous deviations. And then... He compares it to when you blow out a candle, the smoke will rise for the first five meters, five centimeters in a kind of perfect line. Mm-hmm. And then the mini deviations in air movement cause mm-hmm. this sudden sporadic mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just this wonderful like collapsing of the world into these patterns, mm-hmm. which I think is what the book ends up being about kind of a chaos theory as a way of observing patterns mm-hmm. rather than specific details or exactly the big picture yeah. movements which i think is a, a bit what my book is trying to latch on to in some ways small picture big picture mm-hmm. collapsing which should have been probably one of my earliest questions what is the big picture of your story in your book what's the observation what's the comment mm. that you're making do you think I launched the book in England at this place called Reference Point. Mm-hmm. Amazing library amazing place. Story, yeah. I spoke a bit about the book. Mm-hmm. And one image I pointed to is this spider web mm-hmm. that's caught all the little dew drops, mm-hmm. which is something I just saw in the morning one morning. And I thought, wow, that's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. You asked me how the book was structured narratively. Mm-hmm. And there is no clear beginning, middle, and end. But I felt like this image of the dew drop spider web kind of served as a very good metaphor or symbol for how the book was working mm-hmm. in that every single dewdrop, if you looked through a single dewdrop, you would see all the other dewdrops in there if you could focus closely enough. 
And every time you add another drop to the web, it changes what you would see through every single droplet. Mm -hmm. So I feel like although there's no maybe specific meaning or message or definitive stance that I'm trying to take, I feel like the book serves as this kind of web and every image of it is a dewdrop that is maybe... That shifts the perspective a little bit. Yeah, shifts it and enhances it and reinforms the earlier drawings in this way where you could see one and then hopefully flick back through and say like, oh, that changes now that he said this thing. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's all we have time for. Orfeo, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, such a pleasure to speak with you about your fantastic book, Little Passing Thoughts, which you've just published and uh, which I really recommend to everyone. If you want to capture a slice of life, of humor, of sincerity, of touching elements, it's a really fantastic book and uh, what a great pleasure. Thank you for the book. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a huge honor to be on here. Orfeo's favorite book that I've never heard of was Joseph and His Brothers by Thomas Mann, a novelized retelling of the biblical stories of Genesis by the great German author, written between 1926 and 1943. His favorite book of the last 12 months was The Smile at the Foot of the Ladder by Henry Miller, published in 1959, about a clown who developed an unusually minimalist circus act. Miller called it the strangest story he'd ever written. Most disappointing book of the last 12 months for Orfeo was Little Birds by Anais Nin, written in the 1940s but first published in 1979, two years after Anais Nin's death. It's a collection of short erotic stories, a genre for which she was very well known. The book that he would take to a desert island was Actual Air by the late poet David Berman, a collection of poems published in 1999. And finally, the book that changed his mind was The Gospel According to Judas, written in the second century but not included in the Bible. It's an alternative history of what really was the deal with Judas. And he also mentioned the book Chaos by James Gleick about the mathematics of chaos theory. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Lit with Charles. If you have any suggestions or comments, you can always DM me on my Instagram account at Lit with Charles. I try to reply to all my DMs. If you enjoyed this episode, you should definitely subscribe or follow me. And more importantly, tell your friends and family.